Imagine being Lucy Pevensey with me for a moment. In case you don't know who she is or simply don't recall, she's the youngest of four children in C.S. Lewis's classic story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. While staying as guests in a mansion in the English countryside, the four children decide to play hide-and-seek one day, and Lucy chooses to hide in a wardrobe. Only, this was no ordinary wardrobe. As she walks through the coats, she soon discovers that she has stepped into a snowy magical world, nothing like the green, rainy English countryside to which she was accustomed. Things get even stranger when she meets a fawn named Mr. Tumnus, and he invites Lucy to his home for a cup of tea and an explanation of Narnia. After hours go by, Lucy suddenly comes to her senses, realizing how her absence must have caused an alarm back in the mansion. She quickly runs through the forest pines, which transform into coats, and she eventually spills out of the wardrobe. I'm home, everyone. I'm home. There's no need to worry, she exclaims. But her siblings look at her puzzled. They didn't even realize she was gone for hours in Narnia because no time at all had passed in the mansion in the English countryside. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast on the what and why of Catholicism. This is our fifth episode together, and I'm going to continue talking about this notion of a sacramental worldview, which is the framework for Catholicism. Just as a quick recap, in episode three, I explained what the sacraments are and said that they contain two components, a sacred oath and a mystery. I liken the sacramental worldview to the concept of visiting a Michelin star rated restaurant. When we participate in the sacrament, we are taking a step of faith, like visiting a restaurant. And just as the patron of a restaurant experiences the culinary delights of the world-renowned chef, so too do we taste the goodness of God and the grace offered to us in the sacrament. In episode four, we took a look at ancient Israel's sacramental worldview, particularly as it pertained to the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about how God concentrated his presence on the Ark, and those that profaned his holy artifact were met with judgment, while those that approached it with reverence were blessed by it. Today, I wanted to take us to a journey to Narnia. What can that wardrobe and Narnia itself teach us about the Catholic sacramental worldview? You know, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, was for a long time an atheist. He was close friends with a number of famous writers, most notably J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of the Lord of the Rings series. And in talking with Tolkien, who was a Catholic, Lewis would call Christianity a myth. This didn't bother Tolkien. Tolkien explained that it was the great myth from which other myths derived. C.S. Lewis eventually became a Christian, and in his essay, Myth Became Fact, from his book God in the Docks, he writes this, quote, Now as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a balder or an Osiris, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified, it is all in order, under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they do not believe than from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. End quote. 
I had a writing professor at Harvard who constantly referred to Christianity and the Bible as a myth. He couldn't say the word Christianity without using the word myth either as a prefix or a suffix. It made me annoyed, even angry at times, but I I think C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien or any one of the Inklings would advise me not to be bothered when someone calls it a myth or a fantasy or strange because it is all those things. The Bible, after all, is a wild book if you think about it. It seems to fit a genre called magical realism where an undercurrent of the supernatural blurs the lines between the natural and fantasy. Consider the story in Numbers 22 where God puts an angel in the pathway of Balaam as he's riding his donkey. Balaam doesn't see it, but his donkey does and continues veering off the road to avoid the angel. Finally, Balaam gets so frustrated with his donkey that he starts beating him and then his donkey tells him to stop. Literally. How about God causing the sun to stand still or the waters to part ways? How about a virgin conceiving and giving birth? How about a crucifixion which ripples through the universe causing natural and supernatural phenomena to occur? If we are determined to discount the seemingly improbable or impossible, the supernatural and the miraculous, then we are not really looking for Christianity. The myth, the fantasy, the strange, that is what makes Christianity. Coming to Jesus because he's a good storyteller and wants people to be nice to each other is akin to going to a Michelin star rated chef and asking him to make you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. People rush to Jesus not to fix the ordinary, but to inject the extraordinary into the ordinary, to open blind eyes, heal paralysis, raise up the dead, and break the bondage of sin. In Myth Becomes Fact, C.S. Lewis continues, Quote, we must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. We must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christs. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. We must not, in false spirituality, withhold our imaginative welcome. If God chooses to be mythopoeic and is not the sky itself a myth, shall we refuse to be mythopathic? For this is the marriage of heaven and earth, perfect myth and perfect fact claiming not only our love and our obedience, but also our wonder and delight, addressed to the savage, the child, and the poet, in each one of us no less than to the moralist, the scholar, and the philosopher. End quote. We will find God in the systematic theology, but we must never let the ordered theology blind us to the poetry. God is a God of order, but he is also a God of wildness. We might think of God like we think of the painter Bob Ross. He has the precision to paint perfect trees while also ordaining them with personification and poetry. They are not just trees. They are happy trees. I have long been a believer that there is a supernatural undercurrent. How big or how close? I don't know. But when I read about Elisha asking God to open his servant's eyes and then his servant saw an entire army of angels on chariots of fire, I tend to be under the impression that Elisha's ability to see the supernatural isn't the exception, but rather the expectation. That in growing closer to Jesus, we don't just enter into the facts of his life, but also into the myth that brings the facts to life. Perhaps this is why I have long been turned off by Catholicism. Even after I learned the errors of some of my fallacies that I perpetuated about the Catholic faith, which I've referred to in earlier episodes, I saw Catholicism as a stale, lifeless religion. There were all these unmarried men who were priests and bishops, and to rub salt into their celibacy, they had to wear suffocating robes and funny hats. To me, Catholicism was staunch and stiff, a strict and repetitive liturgy. I pitied children who grew up being forced to attend Catholic Mass. How it must be like a child in a wild mansion while being forced to tiptoe carefully so as not to disturb the old professor in his study. 
The problem was that I was approaching the wardrobe all wrong. It was like I had heard Lucy Pevensey tell me all about this fantastical place called Narnia just through the wardrobe, and so I stood outside the wardrobe watching people go in and come back out. Nothing seemed to happen. One second they were in, and the next second they were out. What I was missing, of course, is experiencing the magic of Narnia, which could only be done on the other side of the wardrobe. After all, they could have been in Narnia for an hour, a day, a week, a year, even a decade, but in the outside it all looked the same to me. But in stepping into Catholicism and understanding what a sacramental worldview truly is, I discovered that I had pegged Catholicism all wrong. Catholicism isn't the most stale version of Christianity at all. It is the wildest. I say this after time spent in Protestant communities ranging from Mennonite to Pentecostal. Now, an atheist or a skeptic or even a Protestant might accuse me here of envisioning a fairy tale version of Christianity. They might say that I am allowing this beauty, this mythos to legitimize some truth where it is not, and that I have also allowed its intoxicating effects to forgive logical inconsistencies where they are present. I understand this argument fully. As a Protestant, I struggled reading theology books written by Catholics because they talked about faith like Bob Ross talked about art. There was this fantasy to it, which I just couldn't understand. Where they were coming from, of course, was this foundational principle of sacraments, where God truly, substantially, and constantly interacts with our world. We were all living together in the same mansion in the English countryside, but they were the ones venturing into Narnia. But let me pause for just a second to appease the skeptic, or the one who thinks this version of Christianity is mere fiction, or more fiction than fact. If there truly is an undercurrent of the supernatural, then we might expect that the undercurrent might overflow at times, particularly in the very doors and windows where we invite this undercurrent, this myth, into our world, into our facts of time and space. So, for example, if we continue to say that the bread and wine of the Eucharist is actually the body and blood of Jesus, then we shouldn't be surprised if the bread one day began bleeding. If we say that the Lord works through the priest's hands in consecrated oil, then we should expect at times that something truly miraculous might occur, like the opening of blind eyes. If we believe in the communion of saints, that those who have gone before us are in fact more alive and in communion with us, then we might expect that some people would be visited by one of these saints. As a Protestant, I always saw these claims as superstitious. I remember going to Mexico and stopping to see the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And there with me were all these Catholic pilgrims who had made the journey. They were praying and crying, and I, I just didn't get it. They were there in Mexico for the same reason one might take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. This was a place where the undercurrent of the supernatural poked through a little doorway of earth and seeped into our world where myth intersected with fact. Being anti-Catholic at the time, I refused to see it. I refused to even entertain the idea that Mary would appear on earth. After all, in my mind, she was just a woman, and now she was just a dead woman. But what I was missing in my staunch Baptist upbringing was this idea of a sacramental worldview, the myth, the wild, the supernatural, the invitation to Narnia. These sacraments, these mysteries, these miracles hinge on the premise that there is this constant undercurrent of the supernatural. Heaven is kissing earth. God is transferring grace to us in mysterious ways. These miracles, which continue to happen today, aren't meant to defy science. They are meant to remind our scientific minds of our youth, where we would look up at the sky and just stare in amazement and awe. That in seeing the myth becoming fact, 
eternity stepping into our world of time and space. We might not think of our world in terms of the mere temporal, but of the eternal. If we merely think of the eternal in terms of the temporal, then we've missed the plot. We are putting God in a box. When we think of the temporal within the framework of the eternal, this is the sacramental worldview. This is mere Christianity. We become Elisha moving confidently about our foe because we see the army of angels surrounding us. We become like Jesus who saw the connection between the temporal and eternal. When his disciples reported all the miracles they had done, the healing of the sick and the casting out of the demonic, Jesus said, indeed, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Catholicism, my friends, is breathtaking. It is breathtaking because it invites us to the wild. It is not wild like those churches that foolishly play with venomous snakes. We must never make the mistake of conflating the wild with the unfettered. For those standing on the outside of the tabernacle in Yom Kippur, they might see this rigid priest carrying blood into the hidden room and coming out a few minutes later. It was all prescribed and carefully followed. But we would be mistaken to call it stale, lifeless, and boring. The high priest certainly wouldn't. He was entering into the wardrobe. He was entering Narnia. He was approaching the lion himself. God didn't prescribe a very ordered process because atonement was routine, but because it was wild. And so it is with Catholicism. The order, the liturgy, the pageantry isn't because Catholicism is a lifeless religion, but because it is the most wild. And because it is wild, we must be careful to enter into it with reverence and respect, but we must never let the routine blind us to the wildness. We must be like the child who can sit in the grass and play for hours, imagining that these aren't merely blades of grass, but ingredients for a feast which he's preparing. Or that the blades of grass aren't three inches tall, but are 30 feet tall for the little human that is wandering in the forest of the front lawn. It is in growing up that we trade our imagination for rationalism, happy trees and treehouses for taxes and mortgages. Maybe what we call rational is actually insanity. G.K. Chesterton, in his most wonderful book, Orthodoxy, offers this, quote, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore, end quote. And so it is with Christianity. We wonder how it is someone could go to Mass every day, or how an individual could kneel in that pew in front of the Eucharist for hours, or how someone could pray the rosary and then pray it over and over again. The answer is found in the child playing in the grass. They see what the rest of us do not. Isn't it ironic that the people who go to Mass sporadically are the ones who find it the most mundane, but the ones who go on a daily basis, the ones that make it more routine, are the ones that approach it with awe and wonder? I started doing something when I go to Mass. Before I open the doors of the church, I close my eyes and imagine that I'm walking into a wardrobe. And then as I pass through the narthex and into the nave, I imagine I'm stepping into Narnia. I'm not imagining this in a make-believe sense. I'm imagining like a scientist envisions the possibilities of the natural world or how a baseball player envisions a home run before entering the batter's box. 
Proverbs 29:18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And so it is the same with Christians. Where there is no vision, no imagination, no wonder, we become more rational, we become more dead. Or as G.K. Chesterton noted, quote, mysticism keeps men sane. As long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity. The ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic. He has permitted the twilight. He has always had one foot in earth and the other in fairyland, end quote. And so, my friends, Catholicism is not a stale and lifeless religion at all. Only the people standing on the outside of the wardrobe or only those who have lost all ability to feel say that. No, Catholicism is wild, and at the heart of it is a wild, eternal God who interjects the supernatural into the natural in the most mysterious way. The saints of history understood this the most. This is why we call them saints. They didn't take a long journey when they entered heaven. They merely shifted their body weight, and they were there. They lived their life with one foot in earth and the other in heaven. You've been listening to Why Catholic. We have lots more to come, lots more of Narnia to see. So you don't miss an episode, please take a minute to subscribe to Why Catholic on your favorite podcast provider. You can also subscribe to Why Catholic and get email updates from me. Go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to do that. And if you're feeling really generous, there's a section there to support this podcast as well. Thank you again for exploring Narnia with me. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.